Hi, and welcome to Finding Your Way Through Therapy. I'm your host, Steve Beeson. The goal of this podcast is to demystify therapy, what can happen in therapy, and the wide array of conversations you can have in therapy. I also talk to guests about therapy, their experience with therapy, and how psychology is present in many places in their lives. I also share personal stories. So please join me on this journey about therapy. Well, hi, everyone, and thank you for listening again. I hope you got a chance to listen to episode 69 on Being Real, which is a chapter of my book. I talk a little bit about what's in the chapter as well as my thoughts today in regards to that chapter. So I hope you go back and listen to it and even better, go buy my book, which is awesome. But episode today is 70 and I will be talking to Jay Ball. Jay Ball is an officer at a police department in Massachusetts and joining him will be Caitlin Dehe, who used to be on a team that did the correspondence with Jay and they did training for mental health first aid. I've had Jay on from episode 2, 15, 28, 40, and 53, and Caitlin has been on since episode 40 and 53, and we have good chemistry, so I hope that continues to show. We're going to try to talk a little bit about veterans, and one of the things I always wonder is how do we find good treatment for first responders, so hopefully that'll come up today, and here is the interview. Well, hi, and welcome to episode 70 of Finding Your Way Through Therapy. It's also a YouTube channel, episode 15. So and I think I told you, but if you didn't, hey, surprise, you'll be on camera. But the returning guests, and finally a returning champ, really, frankly, Caitlin and Jay finally got the most popular episode. It had been a while, Jay, so I was a little bit concerned about your abilities. But hey, you came back just like Syracuse is doing, so good for you. That's right. Four and oh, about three, I can't say almost five and oh this weekend. Don't say it yet. <laughs> you find a way to screw it up. Well, if they lose to Wagner, we get problems. Appalachian State, my friend. Appalachian State. <laughs> and Jay Ball, in case I didn't say his name, and Caitlin Dehe. So welcome back, guys. How about, you know, it's been a while. I know I, I've said this before, but we've been on like, what's this is episode number six for me and Jay. Caitlin, you've been on this, your fourth episode. So I know that some people may have missed the first few episodes. So how about you introduce yourself, Jay, and then Caitlin? My name is Jay Ball, currently a police officer with the Freeman Police Department. I'm a sergeant, science patrol. I've known Steve, God, it's got to be over 20 years now. Recently, though, I started my own company called Benevolent Guardian Consulting. I've worked with Caitlin Caitlin got me into this pretty much. We knew each other from work, and then we, we uh, I can't say decided, she drafted me and told me, and held my arm behind my back saying I had to teach mental health first aid with her, and then uh, we started uh, <laughs> We started doing a few things together, and she's uh, she's kind of inspired me to, to help other first responders and, and veterans, pretty much in a nutshell, why I kind of think I'm here. Caitlin? <laughs> I'm Caitlin D. I'm a licensed mental health clinician. I currently work at Westboro Behavioral Healthcare Hospital as a lead clinician for our first responder specialized treatment program. But before I did that, I worked for a long time in the co-response jail diversion field. And that's how I met Jay. I worked as a co-responder with the Framingham Police for about four years, then did some replication work with the co-response model. And Jay actually shocked the hell out of me and volunteered to teach mental health first aid. He like was in my class and came up and was like, Hey, I'd be interested in doing this. How, how do I get involved in this? And I almost fell over because coming from, from Jay, it was a, it was a surprise at the time <laughs> based on what I knew about Jay, but is that we, good or bad? Jeez. Well, it, it all turned out good, but you know, I've certainly gotten to know you better since then, right? We've taught a lot of classes and gotten to know each other better. So it's perfect fit, actually, um, meant to be. So <laughs> I was going to ask for the real story. So I appreciate that. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> I go back to like, you, you say, like, how long have we known each other? I think we met in 2000. Yeah. And it's funny because me and Jay bonded on something which is hockey, not actually a game, but someone with a hockey skate and cutting something. Statue of limitations is up. And I don't think I actually nicked the car. So 
Hey, no comment. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but it was funny because me and Jay didn't know each other. And maybe there was a car next. Maybe there was no next. Who knows? But he looked at me. I looked at him. Someone said, hey, what happened? Like, Nothing. <laughs> and then we became friends. <laughs> no crime was committed before someone at work said I committed a crime. So There was no crime. No committed. crime committed. <laughs> There was uh, no damage to the vehicle, as far as I know. There was and, none. <laughs> and the statute of limitation has expired. So even if it was, it would be no, but it was not a problem. So if anybody's listening to this and knows Jay, you can't charge him. And frankly, I would plead the fifth on it. So we'd be good. <laughs> Just thought I would start off with a funny story of how we met. I thought that would be good since that's how you met Caitlin. She f- allegedly forced you. Yeah. yeah. Gunpoint. But you know, what's interesting, Jay, is that I was thinking about how, you know, you've always worked, like I've known you for 20 years. And when I first met you, you had just come out of the military and then you, you met me and you went into, you started with the, the transit police in Boston. And I remember you asking me mental health questions then. So I'm, I'm happy that Caitlin took your arm and twisted it so that you get your yeah. butt in there. So thank you for that. But it, you've always been interested in mental health, no? Yeah, I'm glad you have a good memory. I thought I had a good memory. I don't remember. I, I would imagine maybe if you're saying I asked those questions, I must have. But I remember a, a call from you weren't even in Boston, but you were stationed in Boston. You had to go away. And there was like a, it was a, a suicide of some sort. And you wow. had asked me for pointers. So, wow. And, I, and you know what I said? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I must. That's that's a great memory. So it's weird. Actually, we had a we had a class today, and I don't know how much. Uh, I'm glad Steve remembers it, but I was I was mentioning stuff with PTSD about how sometimes you you forget things, and I'm not sure if that has anything to do. That situation has anything to do, but it's funny. I I don't remember that, but I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad it didn't uh, evolve and start back in 2000. It obviously took till 2017 or 18 for uh, for stuff to happen through uh, through Caitlin, but you know, Steve would have started in 2000. I would argue 2004 because that's when you went into the transit. 2004, police. yeah. Just saying, not trying to say that my memory's good on this. I'm just saying. Steve, I'm I'm happy to share the credit with you for getting Jay into mental health. I won't take it all. <laughs> I've learned a long time ago taking credit for someone getting anything in life is useless. If they did it, they did it. I don't care. But yeah, that's I want it. But in all seriousness, too, there is even a call I remember where, you know, you had called me because someone was really agitated and happened to be one of my clients. Oh, and, you know, you've always been interested in that. So and again, all joking aside, what gets you to the point where you're like, no, I really want to get more involved like you did with Caitlin. I don't know. You see a lot of things. When I grew up, I I always wanted to be in the military. But if you, it's funny, the two things I want to be in, in life were in the room. If you looked at my room and if my parents didn't move anything, uh, now it, it looks like a museum, but of lavender, you, my, my kids always say, you lived in there, daddy. And I lived in there, but it wasn't lavender like it is now, but there were Marine Corps posters everywhere, nine nails posters and Massachusetts state police stuff. That's all I wanted to do. Not be a nine inch nails. I was never going to do that, but I want to be a, a Marine and I want to be a mass state trooper. I was 0 for 2 on the Marines and Mass State Police, not because I couldn't. I went a different direction. I ended up going to the Army. And then I ended up being, uh, well, like you said, a transit police officer and went to another department, Milford, and ended up in Framingham. But when I was in the, the military, you know, I saw some things. I heard some things. But you were young, so you just let it happen. Things happen. You progress on. Now, looking back, being older, for example, you know, knowing Steve, knowing things he said to me, you don't put two and two together evolving into 2000, you know, through, through everything you go to calls, you see things, you do things. And I think it was probably a time in my life that my wife at the time she worked in the mental health field. I don't know if I laughed at her, but I was, that's a, that's a bad thing. But it was kind of like, it never interested me. I don't think. And then knowing Steve, I was always involved and then things happened, got to know Caitlin. And I think it was through, a class and get and, and being involved in first first responders it just know, it just kind of i think all all dumped at one point everything kind of in my life between the military and policing just it kind of kind of made sense i saw a lot of things happening i'm a little outspoken 
tiny bit. And I noticed, and I kind of preached this as look at what we do now as police, look at what we do now as military. You never did this before. We've seen things and done things that our friends and family either one have never heard of, they don't understand, and it has a dramatic effect on our lives. And I think it was almost part of my outspokenness and the stigma associated with uh, seeking help. If we're changing because of the things we're doing, it's not really, it's us. We've, we've become new people, but why do we have to lose our jobs? Why do we have to suffer? You brought up suicide. Why does suicide need to come into the picture? And I just, I think I, I wanted, wanted to help on a new level by telling people it's all right to seek help and all right to get involved in mental health. And I think I go back to your meeting with Caitlin. And again, I, I know we joked a little bit. So Caitlin, what's your reaction when a guy like Jay comes over and says, Hey, I might get involved. No, I mean, it was, it was awesome um, because I was teaching mental health first aid for public safety as part of our like contract with GMH through advocates. We were, we were had to teach one class a month to police from wherever to, uh, across the state, across the Commonwealth. And I am not a police officer, never have been, but I did the correspondence for a long time. So I was responding to calls that the police were going to. I saw some things about as close as you can get to really being a first responder without actually being a first responder, I would say. And I had some cultural confidence, I would say, in terms of teaching mental health first aid for public safety. But if you know anything about first responders, I can be culturally competent all I want, but it's different when it comes from another first responder. And so teaching, especially police, teaching police was hard. Even in the department that I worked at Framingham, I worked in for years and I taught a couple of classes classes there before Jay started helping and they were tough like (laughs) people that like I know and trusted me and I trust you know like as a class it was like brutal what eight hours so when (laughs) Jay was like hey like I'm interested in this would you ever consider like co-teaching and I, I was like yeah that'd be amazing it just brings so much credibility to to the work right you know I have mental health piece down but having a first responder actually give credibility to the mental health piece of it is really what was important and really I think made our classes so good like we had a lot of good feedback on the classes we taught together and I think it was because we had those two perspectives you know but I also think that I look back to a little bit of what we talked about in previous seasons and knowing both of you fairly well at this point there was also this like being able to gel together and really connect that really probably helped so it's one of those things that when you think mental health separate from first responders, it's one thing, but then you see a first responder and a mental health counselor talk and they're gelling and they're making sense. Do you think that that's part of it? Or do you think there's other factors that are involved because they had to go to meetings or they had to go to do some of those trainings? I mean, I don't know. I'm just asking. I don't know what you think, Jay. I think for sure. I think that definitely plays a factor. I think, I mean, historically mental health and, first responders were at odds. I even just remember like the former director at Advocates, Dr. Sarah Abbott, like starting up co-response way back when the thought of a, a clinician being in a police department was like radical, right? Like it was like people were, it just, they, the two didn't, the two fields didn't collide and didn't work well together. And I think more and more that's happening. And I think it's really important. And I do think that have seeing a police officer and a mental health clinician be, yeah, you know, on the same page about stuff. Like I, I do think that helped a lot. Yeah. I, I teach with another, um, that one we say mental health first aid class. I teach a, a, a few other classes, but the big thing I think with Caitlin is, and I think if you look back, Caitlin and I knew each other, but we didn't really know each other. I was working in narcotics and she was on a shift and she was a supervisor. And then obviously she progressed up into uh, leadership roles within in, in her former company. But I didn't know her that well. I knew who she was. It was enough to say hi. And I think when I went to that class, like I said, I, I mentioned probably the turning point. Then we started doing classes together. And it was almost like 
I'm sarcastic. She's sarcastic. I can be, a, I'll say, a, a pain in the ass and say things I shouldn't. And she has no problem firing back at me. And it was almost the part when, you know, the co-teaching part of it, just like co-response on the street, Caitlin would go to the back of the classroom when I'd be in front of it, or vice versa. And yeah, we may be doing our own work on our computer, but it was something where, listen, I'm a cop. This isn't my lane. Caitlin, am I right? And Caitlin Ted would pop up and she'd be like, absolutely. This is the way it is. I think it was that teamwork. I forget what Dr. Abbott used to call it. I remember I'm not letting the cat out of the bag, but Caitlin's wedding. I remember I gave her a big hug at her wedding and Dr. Abbott said something to the effect of all oh, there they are. They're the buddies or that. But I think it was just, uh, we didn't know each other that well for that long, but I think it was a uh, we were just on the same path and we could just point to each other and not, not be cliche or anything, the whole finish each other's sentences. But when I was falling out of that police lane into that clinician lane, I knew it and I point at her and she'd have finished that sentence. And when I was in her position, she'd be talking and it would kind of divert to a first responder or police. And she'd be like, is that, is that right, Jay? And from the back of the classroom, like she would, I'd answer her. And I think it was, it was just a perfect fit teaching those classes. And, and I miss, uh, I love who I teach with now, but I miss Caitlin because we just fire back and forth at each other. And it was good. So how does that feel, Caitlin? And I feel like I'm doing therapy now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how does that feel to hear that, Caitlin? No, but in all seriousness, I'm pretty sure the other person you're tra- trading now with probably hopefully is not taking that personally. Oh God, no. Uh, it's just how it is. So. She'll punch me when she sees me, but I mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> no, I think I think it's uh, I think it's true. Like we just we we just taught well together. I think we we're, we made a good team, and it's certainly nice to hear that that's uh, was the experience. I had the similar experience. You know, we we did we just meshed well together in the classroom, and I think that was important because it's a hard class to teach. Like it's eight hours. It's something that's required for a lot of departments to go through if they're part of the one mind campaign and to have a dynamic teaching team, I think is important for participants because otherwise it could be kind of drab. <laughs> but I think it goes a little bit to, again, Dr. Abbott or Sarah, as I call her, when she started that in Framingham, I was in and out of those meetings. I was fairly regularly involved. and. I remember at one point I was asking, like, why do you think this works out? And I said, it's simple. If you know what you're supposed to be doing, they know what they're supposed to be doing, and you can have a conversation about it, it's going to work out pretty good. If you start trying to be law enforcement and you're in mental health, or if you're law enforcement and you try to be mental health, that's always going to be a problem. So I think that probably that's the dynamic you're talking about. And I would say that's the same thing for the cold response model at this point. Absolutely. Yeah. I've said things, God, even in the past week, we've had instances on uh, on my job where people have said, oh, you're not sending that person to hospital. I, when I was at the schools for a short bit, you're not sending that person to hospital. And it's like, no. But then I sometimes I look back and, you know, in the military, you call it an AAR, an after action review. And sometimes I do that in my head. And um, I'm like, wow, you know what? If I didn't have that experience working with a clinician, a therapist, a co-responder, yeah, I would probably and we say in Massachusetts, you know, pink slip the person or, or section 12, because as much as Framingham leads in having clinicians around the clock, sometimes we, someone may call in sick or someone may have the day off or the schedule or the timing. We, maybe they work till 2 a.m. or midnight. And we don't have someone till 6 a.m., 7 a.m. And there are situations where I would say the normal cop through no fault of their own, police officer through no fault of their own, will be like, nope, section the person. But with the training and riding with someone like Caitlin and co-responders, no, I'm not. You're taking someone's rights away when you're Section 12. Them. I know we're talking specifically for Massachusetts. You know, it's different in every state. But, but but let's explain what the Section 12 is in Massachusetts. There's equivalence to every state. Yeah. But it's basically taking away your civil liberties for that time being until you're evaluated to be deemed to go back in the community or the hospital. But they, they have all different names across every state. But even in Canada, Europe, they all have that. So mm-hmm. let's explain what it is. So when we say Section 12 or pink slip, that's what we're talking about. So just want to explain that. Yeah. And it's a point where other, oh, it's taken away. It's, it's almost like <laughs> arresting someone. That have it. You can, you can justify someone to the hospital. Rarely does a doctor call a medical doctor call from the emergency room and say, Oh, whoa, whoa. Why'd you send this person here? Does it happen? Absolutely. In my experience, I've probably heard it happen. You know, 
maybe I've got one or two calls over my almost 20 years. Well, wh- why'd you send them here? Why are they here in the ER? Well, explain it. Well, you didn't put that on the slip. Well, I'm sorry. I only have three lines and we're busy, but this is why they're there. But then as you learn more and more from your co-response partner, your therapist, your, your clinician with you uh, that's riding, you know, sometimes not everything, you know, find another way to help that person. It doesn't mean you need to, like you said, take away the civil liberties. Maybe it's providing them with resources to get to the next day. Maybe, for example, Caitlin is working day shift and it's three in the morning and the person isn't a harm to kill themselves or someone else. Can we get them to 8 a.m.? Can we use the resources that the co-response brings to us to get them there? Some people look and say, oh, my God, that person you now uses the, the C word. Crazy. Oh, well, maybe they do have something going on in their lives at the time, but are they, if we don't put them in a hospital, are they going to hurt themselves or someone else? And that's, no, they're not. And those are the things you learn with a program like co-response. And and also too, I'm not going to uh, promote one or the other, but in some areas of the country, CIT crisis uh, intervention teams give officers a basis of how they can deal with mental health calls. And that's a whole different episode, but I think having co-response does help entering the officers. I remember being in another town, not Framingham, and uh, no one wanted to take the clinician. I came to Framingham and they were fighting over who's going to take the clinician out on the road. I'm like, well, this is weird. And not that it should be weird, but police don't want to have people with them. It's not because I want to cover things up. And I think I probably mentioned this in another episode. It was just that given my keys, in Massachusetts, mostly we ride alone. In Boston, maybe different. Some of the larger cities, but we ride alone. And I think it's it's cramping, and other departments cramping their style to have. I get oh, where's the junior guy? They can take the clinician. It's not that way in Framingham. People are like no, they can come with me. Am I wrong, Caitlin? Like it's different. No, and it so through the replication that I did with the correspondence model, every department we stepped foot in was resistant to having a clinician ride along with them because a zillion reasons, right? Like, oh, well, if I say something, like if I say something wrong, or you're going to report it to the chief or you, just all the things like, you know, well, that's where my bag goes. Who's going to, that's where my duty bag goes. <laughs> what, what do you think you're going to sit there? You know, there's all, all the reasons, right? But at the end of the day, every department we stepped foot in, once they saw the value that a clinician brings to a call, and <laughs> the way that clinicians are able to even like in plain terms, reduce the amount of work that an officer might have to do on a call. That's uh, was always the selling point. Like, Oh, well, that was great. Like, I don't even have to write a report on that. Cause you just handled it. <laughs> right. Like it's, that's a big selling point. And so as soon as every department where you're in, you know, you get a handful of officers that want to take the clinician out and they get along with the clinician, they learn things from the clinician, the clinician learns things from the officers. And that's how I got into being passionate about first responder mental health was riding around and going to some of these like really significantly traumatic calls with fire and EMS and police and like watching you guys be at these calls and then oh, on to the next call, but we would be in the in the cruiser on the way to the next call and you guys would be, you, people would say stuff like, well, that was really fucked up. And I'd be like, yeah, it was. <laughs> Do you want to talk about it? Right. And we would talk about it because that's healthy. That's normal to the process. Some of the things but that's not happening. And that over time is a problem. Um, but that's, I mean, that's how I got interested in first responder mental health was through that time going to the same calls and really seeing the impact it has on people. Just and one thing I want to say, because it came up today when I was speaking to another department, in Massachusetts, and it's been said to me with departments out of the state, especially when they critique the embedded, they call it the embedded model. And I guess you know, Caitlin's like an embedded reporter. So they're not an embedded reporter. But what really, really irritates me, and yes, police, there's males and females in police work, but it, it's a male dominated profession. That's true. And yes, there's a lot of type A personalities. And I've heard, and this is out to my chiefs, my deputy chiefs, not my in my department, but across the United States, Canada, all the chiefs out there, the managers of police departments, don't interview clinicians who are highly qualified and say to them, oh, well, I was expecting someone that looked like my grandmother. Because other than being extremely disrespectful, 
okay, great. Are you going to have police officers that, and I'm going to, I'm going to attack the elephant room. Are you going to have police officers that try and hit on a clinician? Absolutely. Are you going to have ones that form relationships with, do I know, do I know police officers that are married to clinicians? Absolutely. But you're going to have to, at some point, one, trust your police officers to not be dumb. I'm not saying people can't have relationships, but one, to not be dumb. And two, to trust that clinician as, as a professional and not think about liability all the time where, oh, I want them to look my, like my grandmother. Newsflash, chief, deputy chief, lieutenants, captains across North America. That's not going to happen. You want clinicians who are, I don't care if you're male, female, whatever, to say something like, oh, I, I need you to look like my, my grandmother to be in a cruise with my officers. Well, that's a bigger, that's, that's not a clinician's problem. That, that's a departmental problem. So like I said, to all those managers, I know in my department and not kissing their fourth point of contact, they would never say anything like that. Caitlin can attest to that. That's not a thing. But to put that on a clinician saying, I'm looking for my, someone that looks like my grandmother is just blows my mind. It's like, no, no, we found a good clinician, male, female, alien, whatever, you know, from out of space, big deal. We found the right person. We're putting them in a cruiser with you. You are traveling with them. You will work together as, as a team. That's almost like saying we opened a new department in XYZ widget company. Ooh, but I can't have you there because you don't look like a, it's, it's, that's the same thing. You can't say that. It's like, uh, we're putting qualified mental health professionals in cruisers. Okay. And it's said so many times I've heard from multiple departments throughout the United States. I was on the West coast a couple of weeks ago. I heard it from uh, an administrator in a police department. It, it just, you know, like I said, I'm not politically correct by any means, but it blows my mind when I heard it. So that's the only thing I want to add. Well, I'm going to add a couple of things. So you said Canada and the U.S. Uh, let's let's honor also Dr. Abbott by saying that Ireland is also following that model at this point. And I want to give her a lot of credit for that to bring it across the pond now, which is an amazing thing. So that's what I wanted to say. And I think that it, it is a department problem that I, I think we read each other's mind because that's where I was going to go. And the other thing, too, is any department. And this is for not only police, it's for fire, it's for paramedics is for therapists. There's always going to be like a bunch of people who are going to be curious, wanting to embrace a new project. There's going to be some who are going to be resistant, but willing to listen. And there are going to be people who are going to resist it through the through end of days. And when I hear what I heard at one point, this is maybe years ago, but oh, well, what are you going to do about Johnny who's re resistant? Nothing. Why would you not try to convince Johnny? Because I don't give a crap about Johnny. If Johnny doesn't want to use me, that's fine. And if he ever needs me, though, they usually call me, though. So, you know, at the end of the day, even the most resistant ones really embrace it. And, you know, and, and, and I'm not there's no officer called Johnny. I just made the name up. But that happened in many departments. And eventually the, the guys who are the most resistant are the ones that are like, oh, this shit works. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it does work. <laughs> I had an officer that I worked with in one department and he wouldn't take me out like to drive around for a shift, but once a couple after a couple of times seeing me on a call that he responded to that I was helpful. If he needed me on a call, he would come pick me up at the station. But he would he would pick when I when I went to get in the car, he would put his duty bag in the center console between the two of us and he'd hold on to it on the way to the call. And when we were at the call, he'd put the bag back and then he'd move it again for me to go back to the station. And then we get back to the station and back the bag would go. And that was, that was just how it was every time. And uh, that was fine. Like no offense taken. Like the way I tell, I used to train co-response clinicians was when you're in a cruiser, you're in their office. Like that's where they spend all their time. So you're essentially like sitting on their desk when you're in that front seat of the car, right? Like that's where they keep their stuff, their, you know, their notepad, their ticket book, their hand sanitizer, all that stuff is right in that bag. And if you're there, then it's sort of an invasion of their space, right? So it's never a personal thing. It's just, uh, but once, like, like I said, once he saw how helpful it was to have a clinician on a call, he'd come pick me up, bring me there, bring me back. <laughs> and I don't want to give the wrong credit but someone once said to me something similar you're walking into their office you're the invited guest in their office so you got to mm -hmm. act like an invited guest 
Eventually, you'll be probably part of it, but you're still an invited guest, no matter how comfortable you get. And that was always, I can't, I can't, I don't want to attribute it to the wrong person, but definitely we had that early conversation years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to shift gears because, you know, one thing that we finished off last episode is we were talking about a little bit about veterans court. We talked about veterans and uh, by the time this is released, we'll be about a month away from veterans day. I wanted to talk a little more about that because one of the, my biggest pet peeve is this, and this is something that Caitlin brought up maybe two seasons ago personally to us before an interview. And I want to bring it up because it's an important one. You know, if you're served in the military and you got, you know, you got an ID, you got your leg blown up, you got your arm blown up, whatever the case may be, people see that and they're like, oh yeah, there's a disability, there's a problem. When you've seen someone blow up with an ID or seen five or six and you have post-traumatic stress disorder from that, People don't see it, right? You don't see PTSD. It's in your brain, so to speak. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the trauma, not only for like, we're talking about military here. I think first responders, a lot of them are military trained and have been in the military before, but I think it might be a good, good conversation to have. And how do we, we kind of attack that stigma and whoever wants to start first, I'm not. Caitlin, you're the professional. (laughs) You're a professional too, just a different department. (laughs) (laughs) you know it's funny i think about what you say jay in class about like if you had a heart attack everybody in class would come and like try to help you out but if you were at the front of the class like talking to yourself and seeing things or you know you know acting unusual right people would would not respond the same way like they wouldn't run to you and be like hey man do you need some help david shy away or pull out the pink paper right away or whatever, you know, whatever they would do. The two, the mental health and the physical health are treated very differently and they really need to be treated as one because they impact each other so significantly. And I think that's part of, you also say in class, what's the only officer involved call that is okay to be messed up from and an officer involved shooting, right? Like that's, and that's a that's a time where it's accepted in across the profession to be rattled or upset or have some kind of PTSD from. But those are officer involved shootings overall are are few and far in between compared to horrific car accidents, suicides, murder calls. You know all these big child deaths, drownings, right? Like all these horrific tragedies that happen in life and you guys are the ones responding and but you're also humans you're first responders but you also are humans which means you also have emotions and feelings like everyone else and you have to put them away at the end of that call to go to the next call but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be revisited and processed because then it gets to that point where you it's all this unseen like you said, it's not, you can't see that trauma. It's just, you know, in your body and you don't see it. It's not like a gunshot wound, but it's, it's can be just as impactful over time and can end up being really detrimental to a person's life. And so I feel like that's the point that I try to drive home and, you know, with all my patients is that mental health and physical health are really connected and really important. And it needs to be addressed just as much as the physical health. A couple of things that jumped out at me, like, and Caitlin, you said it before too, and we may have covered it, snap out of it. I had a relative of mine who's, who's, I I never knew this, had struggles over the years with mental health, and it was brought to my attention through another relative. And I once in a while sneak into the conversation because it's kind of taboo. The the other relative is a older person. Yeah, we have generational differences, good and bad. And hey, how how are they doing? How are they going to be? And this person isn't in law enforcement and neither was in the military. But yeah, they've done this, they've done that, but they haven't snapped out of it yet. And just because it's an older generation that I'm talking to at the time, I don't get in that argument, but sometimes I do get a little irritated. And I said, what do you mean by snap out of it? And well, you know, this, they've done this and they've kind of done it, but they just can't. I said, well, if I take a hammer right now or, or an accident happens and I shatter my hand, yeah, bones heal, but 
are they going to say, oh, it's it, it's good. Jay's hands in a million different pieces, but it's just going to reset. No, I'm going to go deal with it. So someone's just not going to step out of it. I'm not telling you this, but I'm saying to everyone else uh, that, you know, especially the first responders and veterans, they'll be like, oh, you know, it'll pass. Well, maybe it won't pass. And maybe the things you've seen, and this does, like Steve said, veteran wise, you don't need to, and something I learned was you don't need to come home burnt over 90% of your body. You don't need to come home blind. You don't need to come home missing an arm or a leg. And yes, I still struggle with thinking of, well, I've got everything I've, I want to do in my life. You, you may have seen things while you're deployed and you may have done things while you're deployed that um, have an effect on you. The military is, is, is an awesome, awesome organization. I don't care what branch it is. We'll all joke, especially with Veterans Day coming up, Army, Navy game, God uh, at work myself and, and you know the navy guys maybe in the army we joke we we say things but at the end of the day we're one team and no matter what branch you're in things have happened and talk to each other i think in my police department right now there are generational differences among the veterans but i think we do a great job and we have a lieutenant that kind of rallies all the veterans together i think we're we're an informal support for each other uh, because everyone's experiences are different. Everyone grew up different and the military being such a unique organization. I mean, I always remember the first thing I heard when I got into the chow hall, God, 1995, I didn't know what grits were. I have no idea what grits were. You may have seen it on TV. I could go into a whole bunch of quotes on TV about grits. Never knew who they are. I met a kid from South Carolina and he made a joke, them are grits. I'm like, what the heck are grits? All I saw was this white stuff on my plate. And I'm like, all right, well, that's what I'm eating, I guess, with some of these eggs and whatever the, whatever mystery meat that is. But you think of it. I grew up in Lawrence, Massachusetts. He grew up in Columbia, South Carolina. That's different cultures. That's different everything. But you learn to work together and get through things. Did I grow up poor? No. Did I grow up in a, in a city that's really rough, Massachusetts? Sure. Did I have a rough upbringing? Not really. Did I make it rough? Sure. I made it rough on myself. And you could say that about people who go into the military because sometimes it's their only option uh, at a good life. You know, and people cringe at that, but it's true. I knew a lot of people that would have ended up in prison, would have ended up. So you think of all those different backgrounds melding together to be a team, but now we're sending you to war. We're sending you peacekeeping. We're sending you there. And it all has a dramatic effect on everyone. I may go to a domestic incident as a police officer and one thing, one outcome comes because I can compartmentalize. I can, I can look at this, but I may also have my partner who grew up in an abusive household and you look and it's like, Ooh, relax, man. You know, this is horrible. This is a, this is a bad domestic. And then you don't find later that this person grew up with violence in the household. So everyone's different. I think you see that a lot in the military. It's a lot of personalities, a lot of backgrounds, socioeconomic status, and uh, everything affects someone different. So to say someone didn't lose an arm, a leg, this, that, and they may have some mental health problems. Well, mental health is, like Caitlin alluded to, sometimes I bring up in classes, it's still part of the body. Right. And, and there's a few things I want to add to that maybe, and I don't know if that helps, but the trauma stuff, one thing that is more than my biggest pet peeves is I can't judge what is traumatic to you or to someone in wherever they come from. It doesn't matter because for some people, trauma is seeing a dead cat on the side of the road. And for some people, it's seeing a 27th soldier get blown up by an IED. I'm not trying to trigger anyone. I'm just saying that whatever that is. So if you go to your first incident as a police officer and it's affected you, you need to really be able to talk about it. I think that the newer generation is able to do that's a little better than the older generation. And I think that there has been some things around that, but we've got to be able to also stop making trauma that, oh, well, it wasn't that bad. Why can't you just handle it? Well, no, it's not. Who the hell am I to judge what's bad and good? And I want to mention that because that happens a whole lot because, you know, one of my clients who had said that this was a third traumatic event, I'm going to save the details for protection here. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, I shook, shook off the first two so I could shake off the th th third one. I'm like, you didn't shake off the first two. That's why the third one screwed you up. Dude. And they get that when you go in. But there's such a stigma of like, oh, I shouldn't be affected by that. And the shoulds drive me nuts. The other thing I want to say about shattering the hand. If you did take a hammer and put it to your hand right now, they put it in the cast and you'd be in a cast or get surgery and you'd be in there eight to 12 weeks, depending on how bad it is. Right. And then there's no like, OK, that makes sense. Everyone 
you see something traumatic even for five seconds, well, why don't you get over it in five seconds also? Well, no, it could take eight weeks. And we need to also look at it that way. There's there, There's been some movement, and I don't know how I feel just yet about it, that talks about maybe we've got to stop talking about it as mental health or physical health, just call it as health. And I think that might be a good way to, to start thinking about, especially for our first responders, for our military personnel in particular, because if you start putting mental health, there's a stigma. If you say it's a health issue, they seem to be okay with it. And more not to, to, to monopolize. I know that we're looking towards, uh, especially, and, and this is all to do with Caitlin too, peer support, whether it's within the department. If you have a peer support unit, and I know they're starting to get more and more in, in police, if you have a peer support unit, one, if you're trying to start it up, get officers in rank to help rank that people can talk to. Maybe with some lived experience, maybe they don't, maybe they're they're people they trust. Along with that, utilize those things. No one's trying to come for your job. And I know I, I just got probably, a, a I don't know how many people will be listening to this, but I got a big eye roll from all first responders. Well, they won't understand. Well, you know what, dude? It's to the point where you're going to let yourself continue to not heal and, and for lack of a better word, be shattered to ask for peer support. You could just come to me peer support wise and say, I can't do this. And maybe I point you towards Steve. Maybe I point you towards Caitlin uh, and their programs and, and their counseling yeah. services. Maybe I'm just an ear to listen to, but I know of some people, officers, and actually ironically, military veterans who are the police officers who are going through counseling have told me and they post things or, or talk about things and they're totally bought in. And I'm like, wow, who's this person? You know, more than me, I'm bought in, but they post things on uh, social media. They, they say things in public. They talk to other people. And it's like, wow, this person's really bought in. And once you break, I, I say, run it through the finish line, breaking the tape. And finally, when you're all in, then other people be like, oh, if that person's doing it, I can do it too. You know? That's the way I kind of look at it peer wise. I'd like to hear your impressions too, Caitlin, around the peer support stuff, because I think that's a great idea. Yeah, peer support is really important. I think not just for first responders, but in general, recovery, it's important to have people who've been through or in recovery themselves, like having that firsthand knowledge, right? Because, yeah, do I, can I help somebody in recovery? Absolutely. Can I help somebody? process their trauma who's from a traumatic call in the police or even from a military trauma. Yeah, sure. I can do that. But I can't say that I really understand where they're coming from in terms of my own experiences. Have I had my own traumatic experiences? Sure. But it's not the same type of ability to be able to sit with somebody and say, oh yeah, you know, you're going through this thing and you know, I get it because I would, uh, this happened to me. So, many, you know, something similar happened, right? You, you never want to say to somebody that you understand exactly what they're going through because that's never true, regardless of your similarity and experiences. But the peer piece just makes it, again, sort of brings that like credibility back to it, right? Like uh, as a clinician, I've got a lot of textbook knowledge about these things, but, you know, I never had a problem with substance use. So when I have a client who has substance use problems, can I help that person? Yeah, absolutely. But is it also helpful for them to talk to a peer who has been in recovery from that same substance? Yeah, absolutely. Because they know what that substance does to, to you physically. They know what that feels like. They know how to, you know, they know how hard the recovery piece is and how challenging it can be to relapse and all those things that, like I said, as a clinician, I can that's my training, right? That's my expertise in to be able to, to do that with empathy. But when you have somebody on a peer level that's been through something similar, it's just, it brings a whole different level of comfort, right? Like I'm not the only person who's going through this, or I'm not the only person in this field who's dealing with this, you know, in the with the first responders. I think it really makes a big difference. Let me play devil's advocate, i.e. be a fucking jerk. So one would argue that, you know, one of the things that I hear all the time that, oh, well, you've never had a problem with opioids or you've never been in a police officer shooting. So therefore you can't help me. Only Pierce could help me. I've never had schizophrenia, but I've helped many people with schizophrenia. What if I said to you, and again, playing the jerk, maybe peer support also stigmatizes mental health even more. I'm playing devil's advocate. I figured it was a good question to ask. That's my job here. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I think uh, certainly there are people out there that probably have that feeling, right? That that peer support maybe stigmatizes it more, but it just brings a different level of connection to treatment. It just brings a different level of connection, period. Like that's the nice thing about it. That's why it's helpful for people. I think that is what makes it what makes it helpful, but certainly you could argue that it maybe makes the stigma more. I play devil's advocate, but I do have an answer to my own question, but please, I want to hear you too, cool. Jay. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing, I, I, I believe in it. <laughs> One reason I got involved in veterans treatment court was to help out. And I, like I said, sometimes I repeat myself from other episodes, but there's mentors there. And sometimes I saw a lot of mentors, you know, you've got some enlisted people that are clients in veterans treatment court. Um, and all of a sudden we're assigning them to a former general, a former sergeant major or something like that. It's like, well, time out. Let's get a specialist in E4 to talk to this person. If I was in a normal unit as even if I was an E5 sergeant, I'm a technically a lower enlisted person, regardless of being a sergeant. Why are you giving me a general or sergeant major? Yes, at one point they had to start low as a lieutenant if they ended up being a general. And yes, they were private at one point. But I think it's it's almost that being on the same level. I hate to break into a, a social thing, but there's different things at different points of your military career on the peer level that you deal with. And I go into veterans court and I want to help people, you know, peer wise. But the, the bad part of me is I'm a police officer, and some people forget that veteran part when myself and Lieutenant Downing are in there, some people we break through. And by the end, when they graduate, we'll say, Oh, wow. You know, thanks for helping me. Not even though you're a police officer, but you know, they want to say it. But I think the peer part of it is, I don't think it restigmatizes. I think it's helping someone. There's guys at work that I talk to that are also veterans. And I, I just think that we help each other indirectly. We may not talk about specific subjects, but whether it's maybe an anger issue or maybe it's a substance issue, not, you know, maybe having a couple of drinks here and there and it gets out of control and you talk to these people. I, I, I don't know. I don't think it, maybe I'm off base, but I don't think that peer stuff. Well, I, don't, I don't think peer support should replace professional hmm. treatment. Right. I think they're, they're two different things. It's two different levels. Right. I think professional support has its place and has its, utility. And I think peer support has its own utility that's different. And I think using them in tandem is the best approach. Yes. And I think that my answer, and yes, I was being a jerk and I understand that, but my, my thought process, I go back to a former guest who said to me, like, if you, you know, someone tries out a Kiwi and say, Oh, I hate Kiwis. I'll never like fruit again. Well, no, you didn't like Kiwis. So peer support might work for Jay, but for Caitlin, she needs a professional. And then we go to John and John needs a group of peers with a leader. At the end of the day, I just think that for me, I wanted to just play devil's advocates in the sense that some people will have that thought process. And for me, and if you ever want me to share this story, I, I, I will. But, you know, there was a guy who couldn't stay sober that I worked with. And he had this little wooden Buddha on my desk and, you know, Pearl's like, just keep him sober for 15 days. That's all he's got left. He, he can't, can't go back. And he's like, oh, can I have that? I said, can I keep you sober? He's like, yeah. And I gave it to him and he stayed sober for those 15 days. Do I really care what worked? Did I go, well, no, that's not really a technique thing. That, I didn't learn that at Assumption University. I need to talk to my supervisor about, no, I didn't say anything. That worked. And I think that that's the other thing that I want to break as a stigma. And that's why I was playing a jerk here is that if peer support works for you, that's great, but it may not work for you. Maybe you need a professional. Maybe you need to go to the groups at, at your facility, Caitlin. Maybe you need to go to somewhere else outside the state because they, there's too much stigma in this area because you're a lieutenant, a captain or whatever. It doesn't matter who you are. I don't really give a crap. But at the end of the day, I think that the reason why I wanted to play the devil's advocate is for whoever's listening to this. You do what works for you. Don't do what doesn't work for you. Don't go see Steve because it doesn't like, and you're like, I hate Steve. Okay, well then don't see me. And that's fine. It's not personal. Yeah, I'm not going to pull the rug from uh, out from anyone, but it's, it's like saying, yeah, peer support and we'll help each other. But at the end of the day, hey, um, hey, I've got this friend, Steve. Hey, I've got this friend, Caitlin. Maybe we should go, uh, maybe we should go talk to him. Nope. See, you're just trying to trick me. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm saying that it, it works. Look and see what works. You can talk to me all day long. I'll listen to you after work. I'll listen to you during shift. I'll listen to you, whatever. I'll pull up 
next to you. I'll do whatever you want, but I am not a professional. Okay. Why don't you go this way? And maybe the first four times they ignore you, but then maybe the part of it is, you know, maybe I will go talk to Steve. Maybe I will go talk to Caitlin. So absolutely. I think that that's why when you talked about veterans court, one of the things that I'm, I did drug courts, I help open a few of them across the state of Massachusetts and definitely helped the one up in Vermont when I was there. And people ask me, well, how do you choose people? Well, there's criteria for that. And veterans court may not be for every veteran that ever existed. And it's people who have a substance abuse issue. They don't all need drug court. Maybe drug court won't be the right model for them, even if they meet criteria. We need to stop thinking that there's a one size fits all for everything. And I think that that's the challenge I wanted to make here. Mm. Yeah. So I hope that makes sense. I want to finish on something that, again, we brought up privately, and I think it's a good, it goes a little bit with our conversation. There's a training right now that's uh, being done, and you could be a specialized for first responders. I can't remember the name exactly for therapists that be trained, and you know, you're recognized as someone who works with first responders. It, there's pros and cons to that, in my opinion. I think I privately brought that up. So how do we choose a good counselor for someone? Because, you know, I appreciate Jay and Caitlin, you've sent me to some people and vice versa, but I might not be the right match for people. And some people go to other therapists and like, oh, I didn't like this therapist. I'll never go to therapy again. How do we fix all that stuff? I'm, well, I'm looking at Caitlin. <laughs> I mean, it's a big, it's a big, question and it's a big problem right like I, I think because first of all for therapy in general like take first responders out of it for a minute therapy in general for it to be effective you have to have a therapist that's a good fit for you right you keep, like it's just like friends you don't all co-workers like you don't all get along with everybody it's just not how the world works so having a therapist that you're able to trust and open up to is important regardless of whether you're a first responder or not but when you add the cultural piece about first responders, there's this level of cultural competence that has to be there. And that's hard to get as a clinician, right? Because to be culturally competent, you have to have, you have to be sort of exposed to a culture. You have to sort of learn about that culture, right? Any culture, right? Any cultural competence that you're trying to attain as a, as a therapist, right? You have to do some research. You have to, it's, it's, a process. Um, and so I think that that is, I think until recently, we haven't thought about, you know, as a profession, it, there hasn't been a lot of thought given to the fact that first responders and military have their own cultural and need their own cultural competence because in a, in a therapist, because it's so important. And there needs to be some level of, you know what, better term to use, but like some level of thick skin to be a therapist for a first responder, right? I can't sit and listen to a first responder unpack their most traumatic call with me and have me be freaking out in the, in the room while they're telling me about this trauma. Like that's not going to be helpful. That's the time that that first responder is going to be like, well, I went to that therapist and I'm never going back because she couldn't even handle me talking about whatever, you know, whatever it was. So, you know, there needs to be some level of that ability to handle some of that trauma as a therapist, ability to handle some of the dark culture that, or the dark humor, I think that we've talked about a little bit on here before, some of the not politically correct language that gets used to sort of get through the, the day, like those things come up in session. People swear in sessions all the time. <laughs> like what? that's like can't be offensive to you if you want to work with first responders. Like it's just on nine one one, please. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's hard for for people, right? Because there's also train as a professional at, to you know not not use swear language in your right, like in your practice or what you know there's a certain training that therapists go through these professional standards and then you know some of that like it has to bend a little when you're working with first responders it just does and I think that can be hard for therapists so finding people who are okay with that it can be hard so one thing for first responders and veterans that I want to put out there with finding the right therapist is couple of things um, in, in that mental, we always talk about mental first aid because it's kind of what, what Caitlin and I did for a while. 
there's a sheriff's deputy that was shot long story short in uh in suffolk new york i think it was in 98 and uh they use her video and she jokes in the video about after her experience of basically almost dying being shot a few times is that she went through 10 therapists and she laughs about it and i always listen to her and i'm like oh that's funny but she did she went through 10 therapists and that being said you could find the right therapist and I'm going to joke now. I know a guy, no, but you could find a therapist that works for you and it could be the one person. And guess what? They bring up something, for example, yoga. And you're like, oh my God, I love this guy. And he really wants me to try yoga. And I, I mean, my friend had been resistant to that, but then when I bring it up to friends of mine who are in the field and um, my wife and stuff, that's a good idea. Nope. So could you find the right person who's a therapist and 90% of it is awesome. And then, but they're there to bring stuff up to you. We've gone through these and, and, and you both have said unpacking, we've unpacked these things. We've done these things. We're in, as I call maintenance phase, Hey, put a little weight there, buddy, or you're constantly stressed. And I know you don't want to do this, or you, you, maybe your anger is you, you handled your anger for a while. Maybe you should try this. Yeah, your therapist is going to bring up, especially if you're a first responder or a veteran, they're going to bring up things that you're going to think are absolutely no way not going to do it. And maybe you don't do it. And maybe it turns into a, a volatile situation, not volatile, it's a bad word. Maybe it turns into a, you roll your eyes the next time. Yeah, okay, I know you said that. And there's going to be things you're resistant to, but, but stick with it because you did trust that person. And maybe you break down and do things and maybe it doesn't fit your comfort level yet, or it never will fit your comfort level. But if you find that person that you work with, well, stick with them because not uh, the way I look is you're not going to get, you're not going to find the person you get along with hundred percent and no therapist is going to sit there and yes, you to death. If they do, they're the wrong person. They're supposed to challenge you because think of it as physical therapy. If I blow up my knee and I need to go to physical therapy, you want to kill your physical therapist because they, they bring pain to you and they, they bring, they want you to go over the next hurdle. If you just sit in the chair and go, okay, I'm here for an hour. And you sit there, well, you're not doing anything for your knee. Same thing. If you sit in the chair and you go talk to a therapist, if you don't go through the tough things and you feel that they're pushing you, you're not going to fix other parts of your life, uh, especially with mental health. And that's the way I look at it. You know, they're there to push you. They're not your friend. Are they going to be nice to you? Well, yes, I hope so. But they're going to push you to get through the next hurdle or the the current, um, even if it's a crisis that you're dealing with. Well, one of the ways I presented to my clients too, is that I'm going to, you know, how many tools do you have in your toolbox? And most people say, I don't know, 20, 30, depending on how crazy they are about their tools. And they say, oh, so you use every single tool for every single job. Well, no. And some of them I've never used. Oh, so a therapist is going to give you 20, 30, 40 tools. And some of them you're going to be like, that's the one. I really need that one. I use it regularly. And the other one is useless. I never use it, but it's in the box in case I ever need it. So I tell people that, you know, my job is to give you tools. And some tools might go to you and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But we're here to give you tools. And my job is not to say... Most people have heard, oh, poor Jay or poor Caitlin, and are you okay? No, my job's not that. I'm like, all right, let's dig through it and let's work through it. Let's be uncomfortable. And if therapy is comfortable, you're probably doing it wrong. And that's kind of what I say in regards to that. Yeah, and I think too, like the trust piece is really important, right? Like if you're a first responder and you need to unpack some bad calls or you're a veteran and you have some serious trauma that you need to talk to somebody about, you have to trust that person. And do I hope that you can come and trust me? Yeah, I sure do. But if you, for whatever reason, feel like you can't, you can't take it personally as a therapist. You can't take it personally. If somebody doesn't jive with you, doesn't feel comfortable with you to talk to you about whatever's going on with them, because it's not about me, right? Like if you're like, you know, I met that Caitlin, she's real nice, but I don't know if I feel comfortable with her okay, that's not about me. I'm not taking that personally. That's what, it, like, that's you, you have to be comfortable because otherwise it's going to be a waste of both of our time to try to make it work. Right. So, you know, I would just tell people like, don't feel bad or guilty. If you have to try different therapists, tell your therapist, you know, this isn't really working for me. I think I need to find somebody else. Like 
tell them that that's good feedback to have that's good whatever but like don't feel bad about that you got to do what's right for you and therapy is only effective if you're comfortable and, and you trust the person you're working with i think that's really important we're not everyone's cup of tea that's for sure and i've had someone being referred by another first responder and they couldn't get over the fact that we knew a similar first responder like are you going to tell them something no i'm bound by law yeah, but I feel you're close to it. And I'm like, look, if this is going to work, I'm going to find you someone that they don't know. And I don't like, I obviously will not follow up. So sometimes like, and that person of, of all people, I wrote me a nice note for thank you for giving me the right referral. And he's like, I, I just felt uncomfortable saying, I'm like, no, just tell me you're uncomfortable. It sucks. And I get where you're coming from. I disagree with you, but I'm not going to force you into therapy with me. And I think that that's what is important. You say going through 10 therapists. You know, it's maybe you go through four, maybe you go through only one, you get lucky on the first try, but you need to be able to say, you know, something's not jiving, something's not comfortable, say it. And it's, if a therapist personalizes that, then really it's on the therapist, not on the client. So just something to keep in mind for all the veterans and first responders that are probably listening to this. And for my fellow therapists who take it personally, my phone number is on the bottom of this podcast. You can call me, we'll talk about it. But again, we went for another hour again. We did pretty good. So episode 215, 28, 40, 53, now 70. Are we going to have another uh, season in us, another episode in us, or what are we going to do here? Are we going to have to invite our friends, the paramedic or our friend, the firefighter, or what are we going to do next time? I, I want to go out at the top, but um, now you <laughs> prospect for another one, so... <laughs> you don't have to say yes. There's no obligations. Oh, I want to come back, but I mean, I don't want to be like uh, the, the the pro hockey player that's like, I'm going to drag it on. Like, I don't want to be Tom Brady. I don't want to. Six, <laughs> I don't want to have six titles and can't score more than 13 points against the Green Bay Packers last week. I mean, I don't want to be that guy. So, but uh, yeah, I'll come back. Yeah, as long as we're not at the basement after this one. I'm happy to be invited whenever. If ever you feel like inviting me back, if you want one of America's heroes here and get the, you know the cop out of here, I get whatever it happens. You know, like the, the problem is, and for those of you who don't know me, that's fine. But for those of you who know me, I'll wake up the firefighter if he's willing to come in. I mean, I had to work you up this morning for this one, so I mean, and this it's not really was different. Fifteen at night, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the same thing as a firefighter, really. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I, I, again, I always say thank you. But again, I, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I think it's it's so important. And all joking aside, having you, Jay, who just like puts it not only as a vet, as a first responder, but just as a human being, you're so approachable. And Caitlin, that chemistry that you and Jay definitely have here. And obviously, I'm I'm on the side here. I try to kind of like but we have good chemistry. It really, it, you know, I get a lot of good response from my clients who happen to be first responders. I get it from people who are not first responders and like, they like it. So yeah, you're always invited, but I'll never force you to be here. And if I have to wake you up again, Jay, I, I, I'll just call a firefighter. It's funny. I did wake up at seven 14. I'm like, Oh my God, I can get two and a half hours more sleep. And then all of a sudden I see Steve be I'm like, oh my God, seven o'clock. I'm like, I lost my mind. I'm running upstairs getting the computer. Uh, but one thing I will say is this. I point people out of directions, first responder-wise. If you listen to this podcast, you came upon it somehow. It doesn't need to be me. I see Steve has uh, multiple other subjects here. But look at Steve. Look at Caitlin. They're talking to you right now and they're bringing up topics. They joke, they laugh, they're serious. These are two people and there's millions else out there also. But if you're a first responder, if you're listening, grab one of them, talk to one of them. I know they're booked up. Sometimes I can make a phone call and get those lists, you know, sneak in those lists with them. But if you say, oh, gee, Steve's easy to talk to. Caitlin's easy to talk to. They seem pretty cool. You can talk to them. This is what they do. They're not some fictional character on a, on a, on a podcast. Reach out. Call us. Get a hold of Steve. Get a hold of me. Get a hold of Caitlin. And we'll, we'll see what we can, we can do. Get you in the right program. So that's all I have to say to that. And I'm sure that me and Caitlin, if we are full, are definitely not able to sneak you in. We will have plenty of referrals that are people we also know that have the same wicked sense of humor, 
and a little bit of the seriousness and understanding the cultural competency. So definitely it's happened to me before, but I may have sneaked one or two in for certain people that I'm not going to mention. Homie, we'll sneak you in this whole thing. <laughs> Just makes them feel good that they're booked up. We'll get you in. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, thank you guys. And looking forward to the next season. Thanks for having right, us. Good to see you, Caitlin. <laughs> Well, that concludes episode 70 of Finding Your Way Through Therapy. Jay Ball, Caitlin Dehe, as usual, great chemistry, really loved our interview. But I don't think we touched enough on veterans. And I think I'm going to have them back before Veterans Day, which is coming up on November 11th. So I'm hoping that we can get together and do that. But episode 71 is the next episode, which will be, again, a chapter of my book called The Unique Challenges of First Responders. So I will be talking about that then, and I hope you join me then. Please like, subscribe, or follow this podcast on your favorite platform. A glowing review is always helpful. And as a reminder, this podcast is for information, educational, and entertainment purposes. If you are struggling with a mental health or substance abuse issue, please reach out to a professional counselor or therapist for consultation.